0: Um, so we have class today, even though it's Thursday, because there isn't a one-to-one correspondence of Thursdays and Thursdays, or something. I don't know. Of Thursdays and Thursdays. Well, Brandeis Thursdays and th- actually, because there is a one-to-one correspondence of Brandeis Thursdays and Thursdays, that's why we have class today. Um, because you don't have class on Thanksgiving, you have class today, or I don't know. I I, I, I don't. I, yeah, that's what it is. So a, there's a one-to-one correspondence of Thursdays the and more Mondays Brandeis Mondays. The more Mondays we
1: miss, the more they turn Thursdays. into Mondays. Yeah, but we miss right. Thursday and Thanksgiving. Yeah. So <laughs>
2: the, uh, so yeah. So okay, okay. I'm missing Tuesdays. Those are Mondays are the worst I, days ever. <laughs> <laughs> this is a terrible day. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> except it's Thursday,
0: so so it's the worst day ever. Except the weekend is coming, so that's all good, right? Okay. Luca, did you want to ask something? Yes. Yes, you did. Remember, you said? Yeah, I asked you. You totally forgot.
2: No, I remember. okay, good. Of course. All right. Um, Okay, so I would ask you for is basically just, um, you said that there were an equal number of even numbers, maybe odd, whole numbers.
0: Yeah, same. Same Um, deal.
2: However... You take any set, you know, from whatever, one to ten, and look at the number of even numbers compared to the number of whole numbers, there's going to be either a two to one correspondence or you know one to two.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So how can it be?
0: Yeah, so what about that? <laughs> what? If you draw a line, it's like the easiest way to show that there's Yeah, but look, there so what's happening here, and this this is important, I also want to um, ask you whether anyone figured out um, what the smallest composite number, which is a multiple of, cons- of consecutive primes starting with 2 plus 1 is. Okay, raise your hands if you figured it out. Write down the number and hand it in, because you now get a 1, 1 millionth of a point boost on your final grade. Uh, if you're right, if you're wrong, you'll lose 100 billionth of a point on your final grade. Um, so hand it in, put your name you on it, those. sorry?
1: Can, can you actually track grades to
0: that position? Of course you can, of course. Can yeah, if, you, if you're like exactly between an A and an A minus, and you get it right, you'll get the A minus, minus. and if you get it wrong, you'll, you'll or the other way around <laughs> actually. If you're exactly between A and A minus, you get it right, you get the A, you get it wrong, you get a C. I mean an A minus. A-. Okay, so do you have it? Greg, what do we have here? So what's the number? Oh, yes, you did right again, good. And you did two? Yes, good. It's 30,031. So 30,031 is 2 times 3 times 5 times 7 times 11. So 2, 3, 5, 7, 11, first five primes multiply them all together, and add 1, and you get a composite number whose two prime factors are, did either of you write it down? Yes. 59 times 509, both of which are prime. So, um, the reason, so what is interesting about that, if you, find, if you don't find this interesting, um, I don't know, change your brain so that you will. Um, become the kind of person who will find this interesting. Make yourself into that sort of person. Um, but take your time, you know, take five or six seconds to do that, to become a completely different person. Um, if you um, do find it interesting, what, what is interesting about Euclid's proof is he doesn't say, that if you take a series of consecutive primes starting with two, multiply them all together, and add one, you'll get a prime number. Um, He's not saying that. He's saying if you take all the primes and you assume you have them all and multiply them all together, you would get a number which would have to be prime if you had all the existing primes and multiplied them together if you added one to all those existing primes, to the, mul- to the product of all those existing primes, you would have a number that none of those primes went into. And therefore, that number would have no factors because you were assuming you had all the primes. Now, what happens with 30,031 is you take the first, what did I say, seven primes? Two, three, five, seven, 11, the first six primes. Um, You take the first six primes, multiply them all together, and add one, and you have a number that none of those primes goes into. Um, That much is true. The only thing is those aren't all the primes. And that's why there is a prime. That's why that is a composite number. It's just not composed of the primes that you were thinking might be all the primes, But now you find out it's not all the primes because it's a composite number, but none of those prime numbers are its factor, so there's some other prime numbers that are its factor. Okay, does that make sense to people? Do you want me to go over this for an hour or so? Or are we done? We're done. done. Okay, it's toast. Um, It may be burnt toast, but it's toast. Um, Okay. So um, we're going to get back to Luca's question in a second, but I just want to say one more thing that we're going to return to. We're actually going to get to the pre-Socratics at some point today, um, which will be a change of pace. Um, one more thing to say about the difference between extension and intention when talking about cells. Basics cells, sets. Um, sets. Basically what an extensional account of sets is. What happens if you have the extension of a set? What do you what do? You do? You list all its members. Intention is you give some kind of conceptual account of what is in the set. So basically, extension means it's a dump of the membership. Um, It's a a dump of everything in it. Here it is. You want to know what this is? Here, I'm dumping everything, and now you know what's in this set. Um, What that means is that any dump at all of things that could be members of a set, which is to say everything, that's the definition of everything, is that it could be any, or is that everything that is a thing can be a member of a set. Um, Any dump of a bunch of things will constitute a set. Intentional descriptions of a set tend to be much shorter than extensional descriptions. A way of putting this is to say we now have a possible definition of interesting. So that a set is interesting. Let's give this as a kind of technical definition. A set is interesting if it can be described in fewer letters. And we know what letters are, let's say, from the Library of Babel. Um, in fewer signs, in fewer marks, in fewer digits, in fewer whatevers. Um, if it can be described in a shorter sequence, then it would take to list everything in it. So if I give you, for example, um, even numbers up to 100, there are 50 of them, but the phrase even numbers up to 100 is fewer than 50 letters long. So instead of saying 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, and, of course, the two, most of them are two digits, so it, we're going to be 45 are going to be two digits. They're going to be 92-digit numbers and five one-digit numbers. That's not quite right, but um, so it's going to take something like 95 signs to give you all the even numbers up to 100 as a list. But if I say the even numbers up to 100, that's more like 20 signs. Um, You couldn't tweet all the even numbers up to 100. No, you could. You couldn't tweet all the even numbers up to 500, but you could tweet the phrase all the even numbers up to 500. So something is interesting. You could say a set is interesting. If you can describe it in a shorter sequence of signs than it would take to list what's in it. So intentional means that you can do it in a shorter sequence. It's what makes something interesting. Um, Extensional means it's any damn thing at all that you want, but, but you may not have an interesting way to put it. So, for example, in the Library of Babel, there is a copy of Shakespeare's Hamlet exactly as it appears in the Norton Shakespeare exactly as it appears in the Norton Shakespeare with the same footnotes and everything else. So I can tell you that in just 30 words. A copy of Shakespeare's Hamlet, roughly 30, a copy of Shakespeare's Hamlet exactly as it appears in the Norton Shakespeare. Um, In the Library of Babel, there's also a book in which there is absolutely no way of describing that book. In fact, the um, overwhelming majority of books in the Library of Babel are books that you cannot describe at all in a sequence shorter than the book itself is. Yeah?
1: It seems like this idea of uh, interestingness being based upon like being able to describe it in our language um, in fewer letters, etc. Um, it seems like it's very dependent on what cultural and linguistic references we have. Yeah. Like, for instance... If, there were, if if we didn't already know about the Norton edition of yep. Shakespeare's Hamlet, then, the, then that book would, would, would not be interesting for our purposes because we would be unable to describe it except mm-hmm. by listing its contents.
0: Yeah, so we, you could um, say it's somewhat, it's interesting but somewhat less interesting if you say here is a book composed entirely of English words in um, good syntax. Now that would by no means give you the book. Um, but what it would do is tell you how far into a dump of the contents of a book you, you would have to go before you could say, oh, they're not talking about this book. So you could open a book at random, as you sometimes do in bookstores um, or websites. You, you come upon something, and you notice that it's in Greek, and you can tell that immediately. You don't have to read the whole thing before you say, OK, this isn't the right one. So there are degrees of interestingness. But again, we could say books written in English syntax with English vocabulary and get rid of um, the overwhelming majority of books in the Library of Babel and be left, now that wouldn't specify it completely, but it would much reduce the, what we would need to do to know whether something um, fitted in that category or not. But I just want to give you um, you know, a, a basically informal but still real definition of interesting when it comes to sets. If you can describe the set, it is going to be culturally relative, but so is what people are interested in going to be culturally relative. If you can describe the set with a smaller number of signs or words or characters or bits of information, than the set itself contains, then you have an interesting set. So sets will contain any damn thing, um, anything that you can find in the world and anything else that you can find in the world, um, bundled with anything else that you can find in the world, up to as many as you want, all of those constitute a set. Um, Stuff that you can find in the world might include sets also, like the Boston Red Sox. Like you could have a set which contained the Boston Red Sox and Bill Gates and um, a Bart ticket from nineteen seventy nine, and that's a set. Um, it would um, is that an interesting set? Eh, it took me a long time to describe what was in it. I doubt I could find a better way of describing what was in it than by listing its members. Um, so it's not an interesting set, probably. But if on Monday I say, remember that set that I mentioned as a non-interesting set, then I would have done it quickly and it would become an interesting set because I would ask you to remember it. Um, but that's a basic, Do you get the basic idea, interesting versus non-interesting. You can do this with numbers also. You can say two is interesting. Obviously, this is going to be a longer way of saying two than just saying two. But it's still, informally speaking, interesting. Two is the only even prime. That's interesting. Three is the first odd prime. That's interesting. Um, Five is um, the number of fingers on a hand. That's interesting. Do people know um, that, do you know what um, the word punch comes from in Sanskrit? That is the drink, if you drink punch like Hawaiian punch? Do you guys know the commercial? Um, It's an old commercial. How would you like a nice, fruit-juicy Hawaiian punch? Says the punk. And the guy says, sure, and then he gets punched in the face. Do you guys know that from like TV Land? This was a commercial from the 60s. So it's just a cartoon. Um, There's a guy holding a Hawaiian punch. He sees a a stooge. Says, hey, how would you like a nice, fruit-juicy Hawaiian punch? Sure, says the guy. You can find this on YouTube. Um, Sure, says the guy. So the guy holding the Hawaiian punch punches him in the face. Um, very witty. That's what counted as wit back in the 60s. Um, <laughs> God knows what they were smoking. Um, Everything. Sorry? Everything. Everything. Good. Um, of things smoked in the 60s. Yes. So um, why is punch like fruit punch, Hawaiian punch? Do you know why it's called punch? No. It's a Sanskrit word. Um, and it comes from the Sanskrit word for five, which survives in the Greek penta. It's very similar to the Greek penta, which survives in the modern pentagon, or pentagonal, or pentathlon. It means five. So punch is a drink with five ingredients, originally. So it's, you mix a whole bunch of stuff, you know, like five things together, and then you get, ooh, punch. How wonderful. Um, Why does punch mean something that you might do to someone if you were really PO'd? Five fingers on your hand. So punch turns into a fist. All five fingers are um, meeting their face simultaneously. So in fact, the word punch in English and the word um, meaning something you do to someone and the word punch meaning something you drink Um, are, in one sense, completely unrelated. That is, um, if you think simultaneously, they are not connected to each other. But they have the same root, a root meaning five. Um, So that word tells you, kind of historically, tells you culturally, as does the word fist, which also means five. Um, The F-I in fist is the F-I in five. that tells you that historically, the number of fingers on a hand has been so interesting to so many widely, vastly dispersed in different cultures that that word also tends to mean five in language after language. The word for hand and the word for five, or the word for fist and the word for five, go together everywhere. So five's an interesting number to human beings. It may not be interesting to Martians, but it's an interesting number to human beings. Five might also be interesting as the second odd prime. So it's the even numbered th, first even numbered prime odd prime. Now, it's not that interesting, I know, but it's still kind of interesting. Yeah. It's
1: the it's the first only even prime <laughs>
0: Right. Th-
1: I think you need two th's after yeah. that. Yeah. Um, prime.
0: Yeah. If anyone tells you that there's no rhyme with month, by the way, there is. You know what rhymes with month? One. N plus one. You don't say one, you say first. But you say the nth or the n plus plus one um, term in a series, and then you have a poem. Isn't that great? Okay. <laughs> um, so that makes it. Interesting. Um, You can get a dictionary of interesting numbers. Graham's number, by the way, is the last number in that dictionary. It's the Penguin Dictionary of Interesting Numbers. Um, And there are a whole lot of interesting numbers in them, interesting for different reasons. Uh, Why is 5,280 interesting? Anyone? Yeah, number of feet in a mile. Good. Um, What's the lost number? This, the, um, the number in loss, the sequence of integers, that Hurley I one's when. Know, I yeah. 21 is one of
1: the, no, 23 is one
2: of the. OK, so those are all
0: interesting numbers. They're part of Hurley's number, or maybe all of them together constitute an interesting number um, if you drop the commas. Um, so lots and lots of interesting numbers. Do people know who Ramanujan is? Familiar name to anyone? The Man Who Knew Infinity is the name of the biography of him. So Ramanujan, um, um, there's a guy named Hardy, who is one of the great um, English mathematicians of the 20th century. And he would get lots and lots of mail, um, most of which he ignored. But he got some mail from some extremely obscure person in India who worked in a government office, who said, I don't really know, I don't have much mathematical training, but I've had some ideas, and I wonder if you would look at them. So Hardy um, opened, you know, looked at this, was about to throw it out, but then he noticed that in the midst of all this writing, there were, well, look, some interesting numbers that Hardy himself had been thinking about. So he started reading carefully, and he realized that this guy Ramanujan was just a complete and utter genius who was figuring out um, from first principles really complex things in the kind of mathematics that Hardy himself was doing. So he got some money together and brought Ramanujan to England, and they worked together for a long time. And then Ramanujan, um, very young, um, got fatally ill with tuberculosis, died young. But he was in the hospital. So this is the point of the story. Um, He was in the hospital, and Hardy would come to visit him every day. And he came to visit him one day. And Ramanujan said, "Um, how's your day? And Hardy said, oh, God, it's been so boring. Um, Nothing interesting at all. Even the number of the cab that took me here wasn't interesting. So Ramanujan said, what was the number? And Hardy said, 1729. And Ramanujan said, how can you say that's not interesting? That is." the smallest number that can be written as the sum of two cubes in two different ways, he said, without missing a beat. Um, That is, it's 10 cubed plus 9 cubed, and it's also 12 cubed plus 1 cubed. So 1729, what could be more interesting than that, I ask you? So 30,031, pretty darn interesting, if you think about it. it turns out that most that, that a whole lot of numbers are interesting for a while. One is interesting. Two is interesting. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do, right? Two is interesting because it can be as lonely as one. It's the loneliest number since the number one. Three is the number of the Trinity. Four is the first even perfect square among the natural numbers. Five, number of fingers on your hand. Six um, is the first perfect number. Do people know that? That it's the first perfect number? Um, well, now you do. What does perfect mean? Um, it means that it's the sum of its factors, not including itself. Cool. 1 times 2 times. 1 goes into 6, 2 goes into 6, 3 goes into 6. 1 plus 2 plus 3 equals 6. The next perfect number is 28. Um, thousand, sorry. sorry? The next one's in the 1,000. Um, I think 496 is the third, um, and then 8172 maybe. Um, but I'm not remembering. That sounds familiar. Yeah. OK, five is interesting. Six is interesting. Seven because, oh man, those sins are interesting. <laughs> um, eight because it's two cubed, which is which is pretty neat. Nine because it's three squared, which is pretty neat. And it's also a number that Dante was obsessed with in the Divine Comedy. Ten because it's the fingers on both hands. Eleven because... Um, the 11th it, doctor. Okay, good. Um, 12 number of months of the year, 13. <gasps> Don't even talk to me about 13. What? Is it what's no, no. 13, Re- 13 is Roxas's rank. Yeah, what's 11? Say it again. <laughs>
1: the 11th Doctor.
0: The 11th Doctor. Um, it's okay, it can be interesting for any reason at all as long as as long as long there's a way of making it interesting. 12 is interesting, 13 is interesting, 14 is interesting. Um, they're all interesting. It's not hard to see um, getting up towards um, 100 or so, whether it's interesting. My son had a great trick, which actually works, but now I'm going to tell it to you, that if you ask people to think of a random number between 1 and 50, you know what most people will put down? No. 23, maybe, or 37 is is extremely common. Why 37? Because you're kind of looking for the most nondescript number that you can come up with between 1 and 50. And 37 is kind of nondescript compared to 36, 6 squared, I don't know, um, 38, 2 even, 39, 3 times 13. 37, you know, that's a kind of nebbishy number. Who cares? Um, So it's not easy. Just as it's not easy to randomize, it's not, e- it's not easy to find uninteresting numbers. But there are a bunch of non-interesting numbers out there. Go through a phone book and pick seven-digit numbers out of phone books, and most of them will be uninteresting. Um but there's someone's phone number. Well, there's someone's phone number, that's true. But if you just take them as pure numbers and see whether they're interesting to you, did you find your phone numbers growing up interesting? How many people did? I mean, for some reason. Did you have like a mnemonic where yeah, you Yeah, and
2: like, they were all really. My, uh, my parents have really interesting ones that are like. One of them was all nines and eights, and the other one was a
1: nine followed by the repetition of two numbers three times.
0: Okay, so that's interesting. Yeah, Carolyn. Nine and uh, 72, nine, eight, five, six, nine, four, four. The nine, eight, five, six, nine is a key. There you go. See? Yeah.
1: My, my, dad, my dad's cell phone number is actually.
0: <laughs> uh-huh um any of you read Finnegan's Wake? May I ask no, but you mentioned it last time. I know well, a friend of mine um who worked for Google and therefore was able to i don't know how um get whatever cell phone number he wanted um has one whose last four digits are eleven thirty two which is a major major number in Finnegan's Wake, so his number is explicitly um pegged to finnegan's wake eleven thirty two um all right so Numbers are interesting for a long time, but eventually, when you get up to the eight or nine or ten digits, it becomes much harder to say they're interesting. Um, I know a nine digit interesting number. Oh, sure. I can't find it. Well, I'd be able to do it from memory. Right.
1: Oh, 299,792,458.
0: And why? Meters per second. Aha, uh-huh. yeah, okay, good. Speed of light, meters per second. Um, There's another one here. You can get another billionth of a point if you figure out, without Googling now, without Googling, um, but with chalk, what is interesting about this number? Am I going to get it right? Um, um, Yeah, that's right. What's interesting about that number without Googling? Um, I'll put some commas in to make it easier, um, but that's a 10 digit number, right? And, um,
2: no, oh, did I get that wrong?
0: Yeah, yeah so that's 6 million, 201 million, 110 thousand, 111. If you can figure out why that's interesting, another billionth of a point. Um, a millionth. A millionth of a point, okay. even a million. E- hell, a thousandth of a point. Let's 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 live a little. I know. (laughs) Okay. Um, So there you have what I'm going to now tell you is a ten-digit interesting number. Do you know? Is that Avogadro's number? No. That's six point oh two tons. yeah. That's
1: twenty-seven. It was six. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But there's interesting too. Avogadro's number. That's a that's a big number. Um, Everyone know what it is? Wait. Avogadro's number.
1: Oh, oh, yeah. so 6.2 times 10 to the
0: Yeah, but do people know?
1: Mm-hmm. What of the animal. Animal. Oh, they're not only like atoms in a mole. Right?
0: Yeah, molecules in a mole. Well, yeah. Uh,
2: this isn't the answer to that, but I was thinking, I think part of the reason that we find uh, kind of these smaller numbers much easier to find interesting is because we deal with them. Yeah. So, you know, in daily life, it's not like, oh, yeah, you know, I'll have 10,000 whatever, you know. Yeah. Oh, your bill today is $10,000. It just doesn't really happen.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but it's also the case that the you know, when you talk about significant digits, the last digit of a number is the least significant. So when you have a two-digit number, it's still pretty significant. But if you have a 100-digit number, the last few digits, yeah, they kind of they're rounding errors. So they become much less significant. The point is Here, look away from that for a second. Mm -hmm. The point is that um, numbers are interesting for a while, and then they start losing interest. So we could say there's a first uninteresting number. But then that number would become interesting. Look, I'm so cool, I'm the first uninteresting number. That's interesting.
2: Say that about the next number,
0: that, that Well, except the, the next idea. number would then actually be the first uninteresting number. But but
1: it, because the first
0: uninteresting number would be so interesting.
1: Yes, it is. One person who is most average. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay, one thing about then that paradox is that being so interesting is a paradox. Because being interesting by itself can make sense, but there are interesting ways of being uninteresting, like being the first uninteresting number, being the first set that is um, made up of uninteresting, um, an uninteresting concatenation of elements, being the smallest set that's an uninteresting concatenation of elements. There are all sorts of ways that you could describe something as uninteresting, and that very fact would be interesting. So there, when you talk about numbers or sets intentionally, that is, through description rather than through dumping a list of what's in them, you are basically saying a very small subset of all the sets are interesting, but you are also using a somewhat paradoxical idea, the idea of the interesting. So just hang on to that. I mean, I think it's a fun paradox, and that's all um, we need to say about it today, but it's something we're going to return to. Um, has anyone figured out this number? We
1: have a hint. No. Like units or something? Units? I don't know. So what it is, it sounds like units it's a unit. It's a, a
0: pure number. It's just a number. It's just, you know, it's a number, yeah. Oh yeah, that's actually you're very close to um, a more elegant way of putting it. Um, <laughs> you're, yeah,
2: you're close to getting the answer
1: better than the right
0: answer. No, the right answer is better. Do you know?
1: No, which is a shot in the dark, but is one 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 zero one 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 binary chance sixty two in binaries?
0: No. That's no. What no, but you know that MIT T-shirt. Yeah. There are two kinds. There are one zero kinds of people: those who understand binary and those who don't. Um, <laughs> Have you heard the addition to that joke? There are 10 kinds of
1: people, those who understand binary, those who don't, and those who think this joke is in trinary. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, good. a scale one to 10, what are the odds that this scale is using binary? <laughs> <laughs> good. Um, I don't get that one. It's a meta joke. No, that's a good way of going meta. OK, um, this is a meta number. Okay, the first digit tells you how many zeros are in the whole number. The second digit tells you how many ones. No. Wait, what? Oh. The first
1: digit
0: says ones. No, I'm sorry. The first digit tells you how many ones. I screwed it. I screwed it up. No, uh, no, no. I totally screwed it up. Never mind. Um, it's six two one zero. No, 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 no. I just forgot it. And I wasn't thinking as I did it. No wonder you could get it right. All right, you all get a billionth of point. It's six two one zero 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 one zero zero zero. That's what it is. First the first digit tells you how many zeros, the second, how many ones, the third, how many twos, the fourth, how many threes, the fifth, how many fours, the sixth, how many fives, the seventh, how many sixes, the eighth, how many sevenths. The nine the ninth how many eights? And the 10th, how many nines. It's so it's a self-describing number. Um So no wonder you didn't get it. My bad, and you all get the ten thousand point. Um it
2: yeah,
0: the interesting thing is to ask how long such a self-describing number could be and how short it could be. Um, and um, the, that's that's worth puzzling over. Yeah?
1: I'm just uh, thinking um, I could probably write a program to just run through a bunch of numbers, yeah. and see if there's self. I mean, there's probably a more elegant way to find them. Mm-hmm. But, um, but brute force. Yeah, I could come in with a list of brute force in um, self-describing numbers at some
0: point. All right, do it. Okay. Do it. What,
2: what, the number one?
0: Um the first digit doesn't tell you how many zeros are in it. But yeah, it could be a it 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 if you if you describe if it's the number of ones. That's a number of ones in this number is one. Yeah. So two would not be a self-describing number. Um ten, first digit tells you how many zeros? No. Eleven? No. So it's um uh it is interesting. Okay, in that sense of interesting. Um go back to Luca's question now. So here's, here's our problem. Um, we know that in finite numbers, what we do is um, we say that two quantities of discrete objects, that is two things that you would count, are the same size if there is a one-to-one correspondence between those two quantities. So I have a bunch of sodium atoms and a bunch of chlorine atoms. And I shove them together, and there's an explosion, which there would be. Um, And now I look with my electron microscope, and there are no sodium atoms left over, and there are no chlorine atoms left over. But all I have is salt, table salt. What do I now know the chemical formula of the table salt is? NACL. NACL, um, sodium NACL. chloride. NACL. NACL. Um, one sodium for every chlorine, one chlorine for every sodium. Um, I know that because there's nothing left over. Um, up until the end of the 18th century, people did not know whether atoms existed or not. Do people know what the word atom means? What, Carol? Yeah, um, the word atom means uncuttable. Um, the Greek word "tomain" T-O-M-E-I-N, means to cut, and the A is what's called the alpha privative, which means not. So an atom is something that cannot be cut any further. Um, the Greeks came up with the idea of atoms because they were a little freaked out by Pythagoras. I mean, not, excuse me, not by Pythagoras. Um, by um, Zeno, and Zeno's paradoxes, where he said, "What if you cut something everywhere? Would it disappear or not?" Yeah.
2: Um, one zero.
0: Two yeah. Ones, one, two, zero, three, okay. Good. Nice. Um, good. One thousand two hundred ten. Um, okay. So an atom is what can't be cut. The Greeks thought, um, and Democritus in particular thought it must be the case that, you, that if you cut matter far enough, you get to a place where you can't cut it anymore. Um, but no one was really sure about that. Then at the end of the 18th century, um, chemists like Dalton um, realized that if you took two beakers full of hydrogen and one beaker full of oxygen, you would get water. Or, to put it another way, if you took some water and ran electricity through it, you would get two gases coming out of the water in the proportion of two to one. To the hydrogen gas, you would get twice as much hydrogen gas as you got oxygen gas. Yeah. And so Dalton figured that it must be the case that there's twice as much hydrogen as oxygen, but how could there be twice as much of one thing rather than another unless it were twice as many somethings, twice as many hydrogen particles as oxygen particles. So the way the atomic theory started gaining hold in modern science was the discovery that there was a proportion that was different in different compounds between the elements that made up those compounds. And the thought was, if these things could be infinitely small, you wouldn't have that proportion. They must not be infinitely small. There must be units so that there are twice as many even numbers up to 100 as numbers divisible by four up to a hundred, just as there are twice as many hydrogen atoms in a quantity of water as oxygen atoms in a quantity of water. If they could be infinitely divided, if there was no smallest unit, there wouldn't be anything that was making them proportional. That was the physical argument that was made on behalf of atoms. A mock... Ernst Mach, from whom we get um, the speed, that is Mach 1, Mach 2, Mach 3, um, a teacher of Einstein's and a great 19th century um, thinker about science, didn't think that followed. He said, look, you can have two line segments. One is twice as long as the other, um, but that doesn't mean that it has twice as many points. So you have two beakers full of gas, one is twice, has twice the volume as the other. But that doesn't mean that it has to have twice as many infinitesimal, um, um, infinitely small quantities of the gas within it. So this was an argument that actually went on until the beginning of the 20th century as to whether atoms really existed or not. Um, and it was really Rutherford who proved that they did. Um, But it was only at the beginning of the 20th century that atoms were definitely shown to exist. Um, So that question, though, becomes a question of counting and of deciding whether when you count infinite quantities, they pair off or not. So what Cantor is thinking in the same intellectual milieu as Mach is, as Dalton is a little bit earlier, as other people are. And what he is saying is, all right, let us say that in finite sets what we have is an idea that you have the same quantity of things in two different sets if they can pair off exactly. With nothing left over. Now, as Russell put it, he says, "Notice that the that the that no number is used in describing this idea. Um, all you're saying is that from one, I mean, he Russell uses the term one-to-one correspondence, um, but you don't have to put it that way. That's just shorthand. What you could say is, in one collection, anything that I take out of that collection." Um, I can tell you always something in the other collection that it um, hooks up to, that it is friends with, that it would bond with whatever chemical metaphor you want to use, and from the second collection, I can tell you which it is in the in the first collection again don't be don't worry about first and second in the way I've just put it. um a bunch of stuff and another bunch of stuff and in, a bunch of, in, in this bunch I can tell you everything in this bunch, what it will hook up with in this bunch, and in this bunch I can tell you the same thing about this bunch and everyone will agree with me. Then the quantities are the same. So I haven't counted, I haven't used any concept of counting, I haven't um, used words like one or two or even one to one correspondence, I've just said equal quantities. So there I have an idea of equal quantities before I have an idea of numbers themselves. Now what I can do is say I have a reference set, and that reference set also has a bunch of things in it, and here they are, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M. And now what I can do is say that A pairs off with, the first element, let's say. Um, B pairs off with the second element, and so on, um, of the other set. And so I can talk about the 8th, the beeth, the seeth, the deeth, et cetera. But we're not so good with the alphabet, because we use it for different reasons. Um, We memorize the alphabet. We memorize the numerals. But we can do something with numerals that we can't do with the alphabet, which is we can say them backwards. Um, It's very hard to say the alphabet backwards because you only memorize it in one direction. Um, Numerals you memorize in both directions, so it's actually much easier to say 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 than to say someone try it from J backwards. Say much harder. That's the point. Yeah. But what you're doing is you're going forward each time and then flipping it, right?
1: By a certain, like by three numbers of three letters, maybe, and then you're able to flip the three numbers? Right, because you have an intuition of the number three. three. Yeah, you have fluidity
0: for that much, and then you break up again and have to try to. Right. So we have different kinds of fluidity, which gives us different kinds of reference sets. But again, we put things, all we need is correspondence to say we have equal quantity. Now we get to infinite sets, and we say that there are two different and radically different intuitions that we have to decide between. One intuition is that if you have even numbers, there are two numbers, two natural numbers for every even number, namely that even number and the odd number that follows it. So for the even number zero, you have zero and one. For the even number two, you have two and three. For the even number four, you have four and five. So in one set, as you do from zero to 10, there are two times as many numbers as there are even numbers. And we can say you have two to one all the way down to the end of time. It's two to one. So there should be twice, the infinity of counting numbers should be twice as large as the infinity of even numbers. And that's what Luca is worrying about, right? Um, So that's one argument, and it makes a lot of sense, that if you take any interval in the counting numbers and count the even numbers in that interval and count the total number of numbers in that interval, the total number of numbers will be, with p- plus or minus one, twice the even numbers. No matter how arbitrary large the interval is, the total number of numbers will be twice the even number of numbers. Yeah?
2: I think because of the nature of infinity, though, it needs to be finite for you to say something is twice as much as
0: something else. OK, so but, but there's what we're trying to do now is think about how to talk about something that we can't think about all at once, even in theory, which is infinity. So one argument would be um, all we're doing is extending what we already know. That's the only way we can talk about infinity is to extend what we already know. So what we, so there are two things we know, that you have the same number of numbers if, they can, um, if you can put them into correspondence with each other. That's one thing we know, and that's true of finite numbers for sure. But another thing that we know is that... Um, you can always put a number, an even number, into correspondence with two numbers, namely itself and the, number th- and the odd number that comes after it. So for all the even numbers, there should be twice as many counting numbers. Um, I think all of you, probably before you thought about it, if you knew there was more than one order of infinity, or even if you didn't, you would think twice as many counting numbers as even numbers, right? Is that, does anyone just say, no, no, of course, they're just going to be the same number. Um, If you count 1 million, 10 million, 100 million, a billion, 10 billion, are as many of those numbers as there are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, up to infinity. 1 million, 10 million, 100 million, a billion, up to infinity, one-to-one correspondence. Sorry? It's
2: a million
0: N. Yeah, because it's a million N. So how many people are happy to think that if you take every millionth number, you could put that into one to one correspondence with every number. I mean, you can, but it seems counterintuitive, and that's what Luca is worrying about. How many people don't think it seems counterintuitive? Sure, why not? Makes perfect sense. Um, yeah, doesn't
2: make I mean, perfect it makes sense, sense to you right now. Yeah, no, I, I mean, think, I, think, I, think I think the, think the way I understand cool. infinity, it makes sense to me.
0: OK, yeah, so not. here's a little game. It would go on. Here's a way to freak you out about what this would mean. It's not really going to freak you out, but it'll freak you out a little bit. Okay, so um, it's 11 p.m., and here's something that happens. Every, it's 11 p.m., and what happens at 11 p.m. is that a machine puts 10 balls in a basket at the same time as it removes one ball from that basket and puts it into another basket, So at 11 p.m., there are two empty baskets at 11 p.m. A machine comes, um, puts 10 balls in a basket, but at the same time lifts one of those balls away and puts it in another basket. So the balls settle at exactly 11 p.m., nine balls in one basket, one in the other. At 11.30, it puts another 10 balls in the first basket. At the same time, it removes a ball from the first basket and puts it in the second. So now there are 19 balls or 18 balls in the first basket and 2 in the second. At 11:45 it does the same thing. At 11:52:30 it does the same thing. At 11 whatever it would be 55:45 I guess it would be. No, 11:56:45 it does the same thing. Every half interval to midnight. So the machine starts going faster and faster, but it's a supernatural machine, so that's okay. It's going faster and faster. And every time we get halfway to midnight from where we were before, it puts 10 balls in one basket and removes one ball and puts it in the other basket simultaneously. So at midnight itself, the first thing to see is it will have put how many balls in the first basket? An infinite number of balls. Um It will have put how many balls in the second basket, and the two baskets will have the same number of balls in them, so do you believe that no, No, but that 's the same thing there 's one to one correspondence no they wouldn 't they would be one to one correspondence um, because if you numbered the balls each time, it would be ball. Um, 10, ball 20, ball 30 in one basket, and balls 1 through 9, um, 11 through 19 in the other. But it's still like one-to-one correspondence with the multiples of 9. 1, 9, 2, 18, et cetera. So one intuition says if you do it that way, you have many-to-one correspondence, and one is going to be larger than the other. And the other intuition says now you have one-to-one correspondence just as you do 1 to a million, 2 to 2 million, 3 to 3 million, et cetera. That's what it means to have two absolutely different finite intuitions about whether a set which is a subset of another set, even numbers are a subset of whole numbers, could have the same number of elements. Even numbers are a proper subset, whether it could have the same number of elements. So, how do you argue for? the idea that infinite sets like even numbers and whole numbers have the same number of elements. And the idea that Cantor has is if you're using words like nine and one or two and one, they're two even numbers, two two, um, natural numbers for every even number and so on, you're using a much more complicated and constructed idea, namely the value of numbers, than the simpler idea which the value of numbers is based on, which is sameness of quantity. We have the idea of the same before we have the idea of how many. We can only know the idea of how many if we know that 10 and the number of fingers that I have are the same. I say, how many fingers do I have? It's the same number as the number 10. So the idea of sameness of quantity is a more basic idea than the idea that would use any number at all, like twice as many, 10 times as many, and so on. That depends, first of all, on the idea of sameness of quantity. So the most basic idea is one of sameness of quantity. So Kantor says two infinite sets will be the same, same size if you can put them into one-to-one correspondence. So in whole numbers and even numbers, zero corresponds in one set to zero in the other set. One corresponds in one set to two in the other set. Two corresponds in one set to four in the other set three corresponds to one set, to six in the other set. You can can toggle back and forth, and you will always be able to pick a single correspondent out from one set to the other. So they are the same in quantity without your having to use any numbers to say, no, this one has two times infinity in it, whereas the other one only has one time infinity in it if you're using two or three or four if you're using those numbers as a measure of size then you're forgetting your own definition of sameness because by the definition of sameness which is more basic by the definition of sameness of quantity they have the same quantity and if you start saying no this has twice as many then you're using sameness but contradicting yourself because you've already shown they have the same, the same quantity. Yeah?
1: I'm wondering why Cantor assumed yeah. that the infinite set, the
0: set of the infinity, um, has to exist. That's a huge question, whether it has to exist. Aristotle doesn't think so. I mean, okay. go all the way back to Aristotle, and Aristotle <laughs> and actually most mo- modern mathematicians are what are called finitists. Um, they don't think infinity really exists. Um, but it's very hard to get rid of the idea of infinity. Um, on the other hand, it's very hard to think infinity. Um, here's, a way, here's a problem. Um, how long has the universe been going on? Don't use modern physics, but use just an in- intuitive idea of time. How long has the universe been going on before right now?
1: My life
0: <laughs> OK, good. Um, did time have a start? Modern physics will say that it did, but what was happening before then? The very idea that it had a start suggests that there was something before then. Well, there's no such thing as time before the universe. OK, so what was happening then? A different universe. Does time
1: exist outside the time? A different, is time. Time. A different time. universe. Before,
0: it's more just uh, All right, So time started. When? the beginning
1: of time. That's circular. Yeah,
0: it is. That's circular. So
2: time never started. Maybe there's an end.
0: All right. So just think about this intuitively. Think about it as a pre-Socratic would think about it. Um, it's very hard not to think of time um, having gone backwards forever. Um, you can come up with a mathematical, physical model in which that isn't the case. But it's very hard not to think of it as having gone backwards forever. Yeah?
2: But I mean, time is kind of something that we have constructed. You know, we say, oh, a day is, you know, 24 hours. Why do we say 24 hours? Because that's, you know, how long it takes for us to turn and the sun to, you know, come back. Well, there was a time before the sun was there, before the earth was turning. Yeah. But yeah, you there can was, still there was, say, oh, 24 hours have passed.
0: Yeah.
2: And what is that? I
1: mean, it's, it no, I. A... I think time is
0: defined as just change. Um, well, it's defined as change, but just think subjectively now. Um, a way of saying this is that it's is that maybe thinking about this stuff um, as I hope you noticed from Anaximander um, actually gets you to very modern insights even twenty five hundred years ago. Anaximander, remember, says that we evolved from fish. Um, this like details.
1: Details.
0: Yeah, yeah, he skipped he skipped some terms. Um, but his was
1: stuff up then find a justification for. Yeah,
0: but he had a really good argument, right? His argument was um babies can't grow up grow up without adults taking care of them. Um so there must have been but all adults were once babies, so there must have been something that wasn't a human baby that took care of the first human baby. Yeah. Well, this is something we'll get to. But basically, they say you can have as many as you want, um, all you can eat. But you know, when you go to an all-you-can-eat buffet, you don't say to yourself, I don't understand how they can say I can have as much as I want. What if I want an infinite amount? The idea is there's plenty. Numbers are incredibly cheap. um, And there are plenty of them out there, as many as you could ever possibly want. Um, Sorry? Yeah, Um, so go ahead. Yeah, do it. Yeah, go ahead. I won't stop (laughs) you. Don't worry, I won't balk, I won't squawk.
2: That's why it's hard to get rid of.
0: Yeah, many as you want, that's fine. More, take twice as many as you you need. Really, numbers for everyone, it's fine. 666 for the beast, but numbers for everybody. Um, But still, only the ones you need. If you don't need it, what what would it be? If if you just say, oh yes, and there's a much larger number that also exists, what are you saying? The idea would be, what does it mean for a number to exist? And the answer might be something like, um, it plays a role in your thinking. And if only the numbers can play a role in your thinking, exist, because what else would exist? This is more or less a finitist um, claim. Um, What else would you need other numbers for? You can have any number you want. Um, There's no question that you can have it. But the way Aristotle will put it is to say that there's infinity in potential. You can have as much as you want. There's no end to potential. But potential is just potential. It doesn't mean it's really there somewhere in the mind of God or in the universe. It just means if you need it, make it. If you need Graham's number for some reason, then make yourself a Graham cracker. Um, do it. That's fine. All that you want. Take
1: a few extra universes to store it
0: in. Yeah. But it's not floating somewhere as a real thing. Um, it's floating somewhere... Not as a real thing, but as something that you can have if you need it. That's what... Look, I, I'm, I know this from talking to mathematicians who basically say, really, almost all mathematicians now are finitists. Um, but um, what that means for math is basically that they avoid certain problems. Um <laughs> No, they avoid problems that they that they don't need to face. But it also means there's certain ways of doing a proof that you can't do. Um, so so interesting things happen. But let's go back to what we want to think about here is um, real, and what this class is about. Because it's not even though there's there's a mathematical philosophy in the class, this isn't a math class. Um, but what there is is a way of trying to see what happens when we explore our own intuitions about infinity. That's what the pre-Socratics were doing. So let me let me give you an example. If it just seems subjectively strange, remember I said yesterday um, to try and come up with a random number. And any random number you come up with will be in the zeroth percentile of all numbers. Graham's number is in the zeroth percentile because there are an infinite number of multiples of grams number. And so Graham's number is really just clustering around zero in the, in, as a proportion of all numbers. It's only an infinitesimal proportion of all those numbers are the numbers. From zero to grams number is an infinitesimal portion of all the numbers. From zero to any finite number is an infinitesimal proportion of all numbers. So any number we can name is a finite number, so it's going to be in the first infinitesimal um, um, interval of, as a percentage of all the numbers. Does that make sense to people? It's kind of freaky because you just can't think of a typical number. Every number you think of is going to be a number which is way too close to 0 to be typical. Um, so If That's so We can ask the following question Let's say that time has gone on Because we, we have no trouble Or we have very little trouble When we read Joyce's Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man How many people have read it? Um, so do you remember Father Mapple's sermon um, About how long eternity is?
2: Right. Oh, yeah. the, the, really long sermon?
0: Right. the really long sermon About a really longer eternity
2: yeah, my teachers are gonna skip that chapter. <laughs> oh really?
0: That's that's what that's that's actually the hook for most people for that book. Um, so there's a long sermon there about how long you're going to go to hell.
2: Entire chapter. Yeah. Cool. It's like thirty something pages
0: and yeah. it's just the entire chapter is yeah. Um you it, it totally freaks people out. It's how long you will go to hell if you are um, not a good person. Where what being a good person is might not strike you as what you want to be. So it's kind of since be not a good well, this is going to come up in Pesquet. Yeah. Hell.
1: Wait, wait. Well, in the Twain. Hell? No. Oh. Mark Twain okay. points
0: out the
1: hypocrisy of that
2: whole idea.
0: Yeah, oh no. Letters from the Earth. Yeah, which is a great, great book. Um, so we'll talk about it. But at any rate, look, intuitively, most people don't have any any trouble with the idea that time will go on forever. So, just as you would have no trouble with the idea that the decimal expansion of pi or any um, expansion of pi will go on forever. How
2: do finite hold that idea?
0: Of they the just circle. say you can go as far as you want. But
2: in the end of the day, you have an imperfect circle?
0: No, it's as perfect as you want it to be. Well,
2: so why did, why not a, that, that, okay, a, well, we'll
0: yeah. wait, we'll, we'll get to that. Okay. Okay. This is something we'll get to. Actually, maybe we'll get to it next week. Um, okay. But just say, look, Um, Here's a way of measuring time, okay? As you know, or as you'll find out, Einstein said um, anything that you can use as a clock is a clock. Um, And he came up with some interesting clocks, but they worked as clocks, and then he revolutionized physics by thinking about these interesting clocks. Um, So anything you can use as a clock is a clock. Here's a possible clock. Um, An angel, an immortal being, comes in, and says, every second from now on, I am going to recite the next digit of pi. So the angel comes in and says 3, or 3.1, 4, every second, 1, 5, 9, 2, et cetera. And every second, we get to another digit. And we can say, okay, we know that the decimal expansion of pi is infinitely long. So the angel will be saying this for how long? Forever. Forever. Simple. Forever. That's how long the angel will be reciting. From now, to from here to eternity. Three, bored angel, but angels never get bored. According to Dante, it's because they have no memory. So the angel, yeah. Um. So the second so,
1: says one uh, digit, you forget to the other.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he's just, he's in the moment. Silence
1: versus angel.
0: But the point is, you can use someone, some immortal being reciting pi as a clock. And you can say ta- that there's a one to one correspondence between seconds from now until the end of time and the digits in the decimal expansion of pi, right? How
2: that revolutionized. Sorry? How that revolutionized.
0: Now, it's the clocks, not, that, not this part. Oh. But you could say there's a one-to-one correspondence between the angel, between the digits in the number of pi and the time from now to the end of time. Every second and every digit of pi are put into one-to-one correspondence. Okay, so they're just as long. The angel will do it forever, as you know, and time will go on forever, so no problem. Okay, I don't think that's a hard concept. Um, I mean, it's hard to make it real, but it's not hard as a thought experiment. Every second, the angel says another digit. Um, Now let's think of doing this backwards. So an angel comes into the room, or we go into a room in which is called the angel's room. And um, as we come in, the angel says, five, one, four, one, decimal point, three. And, and we say, what, do you, what, do you, what, what, what were you saying? And the angel said, I've been here for an eternity, <laughs> but I just got to, reciting pi backwards, I got to the end. <laughs> and, and that's that. this moment now. And
2: that's the angel's tone of voice, just like, well. Finally done. I would yeah. be No yeah. memory. No memory. But
0: the yeah. point is, it's here great. we... have been immortal for that long. <laughs> you just stopped caring. <laughs> but, so when did the angel start? The angel never started. But if, but if pi is infinitely long, could the angel really get to the end of reciting pi backwards? And yet, somehow, time, at least our subjective idea of time, has been going on for an infinitely long time. It extends backwards infinitely, and yet here we are at 440 on September 20th, 2012. All of time, infinite amount of time, stopped right now.
2: It keeps going on, but here we are. Okay. No,
0: but don't know when it started. All right. So. Well, like 14-ish okay. So, no, no, no. So, notice that then here, an argument like that, an argument like that, is an argument where you could think just the fact that I am at this finite moment in time would be inconceivable that there could be this finite moment on time which has occurred and come to an end, a stretch of time comes to an end right now that's gone on infinitely long. That would be like reciting pi backwards and getting to the end of your recitation of pi backwards. So the pre-Socratics are already having ideas purely from human experience of time. They're already having ideas. This is itself not a pre-Socratic idea, but Pythagoras's, I mean not Pythagoras, I'm sorry, Zeno's ideas um, are ideas (coughs) that um, really lead to 20th century physics. Um, They have ideas purely from human experience that thinking about human experience, human experience doesn't quite make sense. And because it doesn't quite make sense, what they do is they throw out what they regard are, what they regard as illusions of human experience. So let's talk about Zeno's paradoxes um, for a little while. How many people knew any of them before, um, and the rest of you didn't? What did you think of them? It's not really a
1: paradox.
0: Why not? It's
1: just. A, it's just. I always thought it was just a statement.
0: <laughs> What's the statement, that an arrow has to go halfway to yeah, the target? Yeah, you can just
1: keep going halfway. It's not a paradox. Paradox is like something that compounds no, like, in your mind. I'm just like, okay. The, exist it does it does exist. Exist.
2: the paradox so is you serious? can always go halfway. I
0: don't see a reason why not. No, okay, but so right. let's...
2: <laughs> okay, how
0: many people find the arrow version of the paradox um, at least troubling? I never did, but you do. Um, that for an arrow to reach a target, it has to get halfway there, and before that it has to get halfway It'll get so there. It'll never get there. So it's not a paradox, it just doesn't get there? Yeah. <laughs> <It's not laughs> a, so your, your response is actually just what Zeno wants, which is that all motion is an illusion. Yeah, it's not a paradox. <laughs> okay, how many people do think... <laughs> it's not a
1: paradox, we're just not here right now. All right. Okay. <laughs> Nothing exists.
0: Nothing exists, it's, not it's not a all. I think you've gone back we're to the 60s, dude. This is the matrix. <laughs> it's else. Yeah. It's, yeah. Well, no, because Zeno it's is actually arguing, as Parmenides is arguing before him, that we do live in the matrix, that nothing is happening, <laughs> um, it's as just an up, illusion. Um,
1: is this where you want me to bring up a and bunch what of What does he theorize our, our co- cognitions are? that, that our, our Illusions,
0: perception. we think we're thinking, but we're not. Illusions in what? It doesn't matter because the idea that it, it has to be in something is an illusion. It's all illusion.
1: Because like some scientists would be like, it's just a ripple in the in the quarks yeah. of the universe. Yeah, which don't odd.
0: exist. Yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah, that's what Lawrence Krauss would say. Yeah. I,
2: I never like I, I was familiar with the paradox of the form. I never understood why like that's so troubling. Like like um, what's the space trying to catch a tortoise?
0: Achilles. Achilles.
2: Achilles trying to catch a tortoise that you know he's he's going to every time he's getting halfway to.
0: It's not when he gets halfway to the tortoise. We'll do that in a sec. uh,
2: Okay, well, like the arrow, that, you know, it's. Yeah. In order to get to the target, you've got to get halfway there and then halfway there. Like, and so that means that if the arrow does go to the target, that means it has transversed all those points. So I'm like, okay, so what? Right, I know. That's
0: why I I myself never found the arrow version. So how how do you even. You don't get there. Okay, so one possibility is it's all Maya illusion. Another possibility is what's the problem? That's what Diogenes the cynic did. Do people know about him? He was the guy who wore a barrel and carried
2: it. He just lived in a barrel. He just lived
0: in a barrel. Yeah, but he carried it around with him so oh as not to shock people. Um, cynic. <laughs> Cynic means dog, and it's because he lived like a dog. The, the cynics were called cynics because they lived like dogs. And he carried um, a lantern around in broad daylight looking for an honest man. So he and Zeno had a debate. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, <laughs> and Zeno said, only well, would you is someone?" Like, well, Zeno like, said, So I have thus shown that there is no possibility of motion. And Diogenes said, And I've just shown that there is motion. So there. So that was the cynical response. So you're taking the Zeno view and you're taking the Diogenes view. Okay. You're taking me with the barrel of the lantern. All right. (laughs) Look. (laughs) Okay. So here's for me, Achilles and the Tortoise was always the best version, but there are others. So just to show you how Achilles and the Tortoise works, here's a race. Here's Achilles. He was a grim Achaean. So no smiley face for
2: him.
0: And he's racing a happy little tortoise, who's got a smiley face. The have not figured out. And because he's swift Achilles, as he's always called in the Iliad and the Odyssey, um, or in the Iliad at any rate, I don't think he's called swift in the Odyssey because he's dead. Um, he's depressed because he's dead in the Odyssey. In the Aeneid, he's swift. In the Iliad, he's swift. Because he's swift, and because the tortoise is not so swift, Achilles gives him a head start. So the starting spear goes off. You're supposed to laugh at that. Uh The starting arrow goes off. Get it? It (laughs) doesn't. The start, I I thought thought that was actually like a thing that was done. No, it (laughs) wasn't. I was ready to do it. No, no. no. And Usain Bolt is, here, they can go quite as fast as it was. The starting okay. arrow goes off, and never reaches its target. Yes, good. <laughs> good. See, but what if the starting and arrow the is shooting through here. the target? The and, and the target is, actually stops. Like Odysseus? Yeah. That's what Odysseus does. That's what he, does, he yeah, does? Yeah, he shoots an arrow through twenty through 10 axe handles. Um, yeah, but see, what if
1: he was
2: the actual, the actual end of that arrow's journey was through 12 axe handles? It just didn't
1: yeah. get all the way. Yeah. That, you don't have what the happened is the, the axe handles moved closer to the arrow. <laughs> So the arrow didn't have to get there. Exactly. Okay,
0: I know that the weekend is coming, but here. So, the race starts. Achilles zips forward to the point where he's where the tortoise started. The tortoise in the meantime has come forward a little bit. He's a slow fellow, but he has moved. So he's gone forward a little bit. So Achilles gets to where the tortoise started. But the tortoise, in the meantime, has come to there. So then Achilles gets to where the tortoise was when Achilles got to where the tortoise started. But in the meantime, the tortoise has gone forward a little bit more. So Achilles gets to where the tortoise was when Achilles got to had been first to, etc. So every time Achilles catches up to where the tortoise was, the tortoise has gone forward a little bit, and Achilles keeps trying to catch up to the tortoise. But every time he catches up to where the tortoise was, the tortoise is ahead of him. So he can never catch up to the tortoise because the tortoise is always ahead of him. That's for me when I first read that, which I which um, I did when I was a kid. That freaked me out. Yeah
2: that he's changing speeds though?
0: Achilles? No, it's just all, what we're doing is we're taking snapshots of where he is and every time he gets to, it's continuous motion for both of them, but every time he gets to where the tortoise was, the tortoise is still ahead of him and he's To catch up to the tortoise before he catches up to the tortoise, he has to catch up to where the tortoise was before. And every time he catches up to where the tortoise was before, the tortoise has gone ahead. Here's another version of it. This is Galileo's version. And this should also freak you out. So here's Galileo's version. Here's a wheel. Do you know this? The wheel is, let's say, a meter in circumference. So oops. put the wheel here. The wheel's a meter in circumference. It's got a hub, which is a half meter in circumference. So the wheel goes rolling along a plank and it makes one full turn. How far is it rolled? No, it's a meter in circumference and it's gone one. A meter. Oh. so it's gone a meter. So gotcha. it goes from here to here. It's this is. We'll put a marker here to show that it's gone one full turn, and that means we've measured this as a meter. You know, when people measure football fields and they they mm-hmm. um, use those things, what they're doing is or it's how odometers work in cars. Is you know, or in bikes, is you know the circumference of a wheel, and you see how many times it spins or 5,280 feet, that interesting number. Okay, now we will say that the hub of this wheel is also rolling on a plank parallel to the original one. And they're spokes, so the hub and the wheel itself don't roll independently. Every time the wheel makes a circle, the hub makes a circle. So how many times does the hub turn between here and here if the wheel turns once. Once. once? once. But what's your circumference of the hub? Half, half a meter. Meter. So how far has the hub gone? A meter. But Less no, far. it seems like it's only gone half a meter because it's only turned around once. What? Uh, <laughs> it's the same thing. A it is... <laughs> it is... <laughs> <up at> <laughs> Worrying about this.
1: Pulling his so hair outrageous. out because... It's, it's
0: now, bad. in reality, what you would say is, oh, I have no problem with that. It skids. Um, which would be true, it does skid. But if you do it geometrically, if you say rotate a circle of a circumference of one and rotate a concentric circle within it... It
1: rotates small, slower.
0: Um, no, but, but imagine that it is hooked up by spokes like that. So you're rotating a complex object which has line segments um, uh, and two concentric circles. Then it feels like This will measure, the circumference measures how far it goes, but the circumference of this also measures how far it goes, and they're measuring different distances. So this is what Zeno and then later Galileo were saying, and they said it makes no sense. And therefore, it must be that motion is an illusion. Galileo didn't say that, but Zeno said it, that motion is an illusion. Um
1: cool. You said it makes no sense cool.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Basically. All right. See you. What? Wait, I can't hear you.